ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah 63 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, let's go, Lord, one more time in prayer. Father, we thank you for the report we just heard from the Chongs. Thank you for their, not only their opportunity to minister, but alongside the Knoxes. But we thank you also for the Knoxes and the faithful ministry in Japan. We pray for their work, uh, that you continue to cause them to be faithful. Lord, that you allow the gospel to be shared and proclaimed to all whom uh, you're drawing to yourself. We pray, Lord, too, that you would just uh, encourage us, uh, as uh, Brother Howard reminded us, to to see our roles as missionaries and that we would do even the great work and the great things that you've saved us and called us to do, even here in our corners and our, our particular places in the world. And we thank you, Lord, for your word as we come to it now and pray that you continue to speak to us through it, challenge our hearts, show us uh, the big picture of this world. And, that we, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 63 of Isaiah. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Uh, we're, man, it's just like I can, I can see the end already. I can uh, just uh, almost, uh, if you if well, almost like taste the glory of the coming of the Lord as we're arriving at these end chapters. This is really uh, full of, uh, it's kind of getting at the height of, of uh, this, uh, this, this whole book. But uh, back in uh, chapter 61, verse 2, uh, we came across that, mission of the Messiah. And the mission of the Messiah was that he would come, among other things, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And we know that when Jesus quoted this verse in Luke, that at the very beginning of his ministry, he stopped at that first part, the favorable year of the Lord. We looked at this a few weeks back. And so that indicated to us that one day Christ would return, just as we, uh, Brother Vince even prayed, a Christ has come in the first, and Christ will come again. And uh, Christians throughout history believe this, that Christ will return again to earth one day. And at that moment, when he returns, he will come and fulfill the rest of this verse. He will come to fulfill this proclamation of the day of vengeance of our God. Throughout uh, Isaiah, these, uh, la- these fast, past few chapters, 58 through 62, God has been promising a, a coming day of vengeance. A coming day when the Messiah would come and he would deliver Israel and judge the nations. Most uh, recently that we looked at last week, Isaiah 62 verse 11, we saw this proclamation that the Lord would ha- have go throughout the earth He would proclaim to Jerusalem, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And so to Israel, who is this, uh, as this kind of, we're kind of following this, almost this narrative of of this, the declaration of the coming of the glory of the Lord. They are almost at the, the precipice of seeing their salvation is coming. The Messiah is coming. And uh, Chapter 63, we get so, if we, as it continues, is this almost like their first glimpse of the coming of the Lord. They see the, the beginnings of this fulfillment of the day of vengeance of our God. That's what we see here as we come to chapter 63. Today's chapter is almost like 
the book of Revelation. It's, it's very vivid. It gives us an insight into what's going to take place in the future. In fact, if you compare it with Revelation, Revelation is also about the future. This, cha- this chapter uh, is very similar to Revelation chapter 19, in that it gives us a very vivid picture of Christ when he returns to judge the world. And like all prophecy of future events, like all uh, uh, future end-time prophecies that we find in Scripture, each passage serves to do two things. Number one, to inform us of of what will take place in the future, what will take place in in the days to come. But then secondly, uh, it's not just always information. That information, that knowledge, is meant to motivate. And that secondly, future prophecies motivate us to live in light, in light of the knowledge of the truth of what's going to take place in the future. Today, we're going to look at chapter 63. But as we look at Isaiah, as we're studying this chapter and the next, chapter 64, they really belong together. They're really uh, together a, uh, a description of the day of vengeance that's uh, going to happen. The day of vengeance is specifically described for us in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 63, a little bit of a, an outline here for us. But then in chapter, from 63-7 all the way to the end of chapter 64 is the response of God's people to that day of vengeance. The response, then, is an example to us uh, how we might respond to the announcement of the day of vengeance of our God, the day that Christ will return to come and judge the nations and destroy them, and deliver his people Israel. So as we look at chapter 63 this morning, we're going to look at three events today. We're going to look at three events that will take place in the day of vengeance. That's going to be our outline, pretty basic outline. And uh, uh, <clears throat> pray that uh, for us, that will inform us of what will take place in the future, but that secondly, it will cause us to live in light of what is going to take place in the future. All right, so let's take a look. <clears throat> The first event that's going to take place in the day of vengeance is the revelation of the Lord's wrath. The revelation of the Lord's wrath. If you look at, as we'll read these verses in just a bit, I'm going to read them in in the midst of the sermon. We're going to find that it's focused on a person. And the revelation of God's wrath and the day of vengeance, it's not about what happens, but it's about who. It's about who is coming. Jesus Christ, the one who is the Savior of all the world, and he is also the judge of all the world. And so there's this focus on Jesus here. Recall that in chapter 62, he ended with this proclamation to Jerusalem that your salvation comes. That is, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is, equal to, is equated with Israel's salvation. And so the city is on the lookout for this Messiah. Your salvation is coming. And so if, so you, if I told you, hey, someone's coming, you would all just kind of like look down. You know, you would look to the doors. You'd say, oh, who's coming? You might get on your tippy toe if it's far enough. You'd say, who's coming? Your salvation is coming. And as they're looking out, this is what they see. And they ask, and when they look upon what they see, they don't quite understand. They're, it's as if it's almost unexpected to them what they see. They're going to ask two questions as of what they see. First question they ask is, who is this? Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. 
Israel here observes that this individual comes from the direction of Edom. Edom, particularly the, the city of Basra. Now, if you remember your geography, Edom is that neighboring nation to the southeast of Israel. Uh, Basra is one of the cities. Oftentimes, it was the capital of Edom. Now, you know, if you know Edom, Edom is a unique nation in Israel's history. Of all the nations of the earth, one could say that Edom is the closest to Israel. Because they are essentially brothers. Edom uh, are the descendants of Esau, Israel, or Jacob's brother. Both were the sons of Isaac. Both were the grandsons of Abraham. But you remember your history. It was through Jacob, Israel, that God's promises to Abraham and Isaac were to be fulfilled. It was not to be fulfilled through Esau and the nation that came from him, which was known as Edom. Though they were related, Edom was not God's people. And often, in fact, they became persecutors of God's people. Edom eventually became a symbol and representative of those who were godless, those who did not worship God. We see this reference in Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. And so it's as, they, as Israel is looking for their Savior to come, they say, who is this who comes from Edom? It's almost like they didn't expect him to come from Edom. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps they expected him to come from heaven. Uh, they, they expected him to come from the direction of Bethlehem, but not Edom, not from a foreign nation. Yet here comes this individual, majestically clothed, uh, walking the, script, uh, the scriptures with strength, almost energetically striding with confidence. He's marching toward Jerusalem, and they ask, who is this? And then he answers, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He doesn't say, I'm the Messiah. It just simply says, it is I who speak in righteousness, the one who is mighty to save. This one has come to speak in righteousness, he says. He will, he's imbued with righteousness. He is the source of righteousness. And what he speaks, what he's about to speak, it will reflect that he is a mighty savior. He is one who comes who is mighty to save. They're looking for their savior. He is the one who comes to speak in righteousness. And his speech in righteousness is that which is mighty to save. Very interesting that, he's, uh, that this, is the, this is the Messiah. Uh, and when you go back to the ministry of the Messiah back in chapter 61, we remember that his ministry was a ministry of, of speech is a ministry of proclamation. He brings good news. He proclaims liberty and freedom. He proclaims the favor of the year of the Lord as well as the day of vengeance. This is the one who, chapter 62, is the one who will not keep silent for Zion's sake, who will not keep quiet. He has come to save Israel, and he comes through his speech, through his mouth, through speaking in righteousness. And he's here to save them. He's here to mightily save them. This word mighty, the fact that he's not just here to save, but he's mighty to save, is kind of just a picture for us of the abundance of his salvation power. And we all know this. There's not like a limit to God's power to save. It's like, oh, I've only got so much power. And once that limit is reached, oh, I can't save anymore. God is mighty to save. He's abundant in his strength to save. He will never run out. And this is the one who is coming. And so they ask, who is this? Well, I am the one who's speaking righteousness. I am the one who is mighty to save. And then they question, as if they didn't expect him to be uh, this, in verse 2, the second question. Why 
is your apparel red? Why are you dressed the way you do? So first of all, they didn't expect to see him coming maybe from that direction, from Edom. But then secondly, uh, they also don't expect that he's dressed in a particular way. Verse 2, we read, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the wine press. We'd already seen early in verse 1 that his garments are of glowing colors. So they'd already noticed how he was dressed. But now they specifically ask him, why are your, why, what you're wearing, your garment, why is it red? They appear to be stains, they say. They're stains that are the result of treading a wine press. Now, I thought I'd just throw up a wine press because we don't have wine presses uh, in our daily life today. But here's a picture of a wine press from, uh, uh, from uh, some software that I have. You can just look at it. But the wine presses were basically uh, these, these kind of uh, um, uh, um, structures that were used to basically press out the juices from the grapes that they were used to make wine. And so someone eventually, or some usually a couple people, would have to tread upon the wine press. You kind of see it there, the picture. And they would have to step on all the grapes. And they would, as they would step on the grapes, obviously the grape juices would kind of flow through. They'd go through a filter, and they'd go into a vat where then it would be allowed to uh, ferment, finish its fermentation, then become wine. But uh, next, uh, you can imagine how messy this is. My, just think about it. Uh, it's, it's pretty messy. The stains easily. It's kind of like a... Uh, like eating cherries, if you will. You have very cherries, kind of like the stain on your clothes. Well, this is kind of what it's like. And so Israel, when they're looking upon uh, this Messiah, the one who's coming, they, they notice that it's like a laborer who's just come out of the wine press, basically whose garments are stained with this, this red, dark uh, <coughs> uh, wine coloring. And Messiah answers their question in verse 3 through 6. This is why his garments are red. I have, treaden, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their life blood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help. And I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So it's like, you know, if there's dramatic music, this is where it gets crescendos, right? Oh, oh that's not the wine press. You've, that's blood. And Jesus here explains that this is the blood of the nations of the earth. Very vivid, if I'm uh, just even saying it, really cannot do it justice. In his anger, he has been trampling upon the peoples of the nations. Like, he has, he, like a, a laborer tramples grapes. His anger, his wrath has been manifest in this trampling. Their blood has been splashed on his garments. And if, he, if there's any question to why he did this, he answers in verse 4, for it is the day of vengeance. The day of vengeance, and here specifically we see that phrase. What's more, interestingly, in this day of vengeance, he emphasized that he, is, he judges alone. No man is with me, verse 3. There was no one to help in verse 5. Just as Jesus is the savior, alone is the Savior, salvation is from him alone, so judgment is also by him alone. He alone saves, he alone judges. Verse 6 is vivid, but confirms 
God's judgment upon the peoples of the earth. This is the revelation of the Lord's wrath upon the, and the day of vengeance that was prophesied. And here Jesus is full, has begun to fulfill as he's come from Edom. No nation is spared, it tells us. These are the peoples of the earth. Not even Edom, the descendants of Jacob's brother, not even these close relatives are spared. All the nations of the earth are going to be judged. All who reject the Messiah will face God's wrath. And this is very much consistent with what we read in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, we see this, these words. And this is the close, a very close parallel to what we find here in 63. We read about the day when Jesus Christ comes manifest to judge. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Notice verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ, at his coming, according to Revelation, comes to be revealed. He is the word of God. He's the one who is the, the revelation of God. He comes to, in righteousness, he comes with a, a weapon that comes out of his mouth, his words. Just as God created the world through his word, his speech, so God will destroy this world and judge the nations with his very mouth and speech. He will not have to raise a finger. He just will speak it, and the nations will be judged and destroyed. And he comes as one who treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. This is the day of vengeance fulfilled in Revelation 19. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So in view of this day of vengeance, the people of God, the Israelites, they will respond to this, knowing that this is the one who's coming, and he answers them, this is who I am. This is why I'm dressed the way I am. I'm judging the nations. And we see the response then in 63.7 all the way through 64. And whereas we may understand this as Isaiah's response on behalf of Israel, because he begins speaking in the first person in verse 7, I shall make mention, he's in a sense representing the nation, a question we ask ourselves is, if this is, even though Isaiah is speaking, but is representative of Israel, when does Israel say this? When does, when does Israel give, speak these words, this response to, uh, to the coming day of vengeance? Well, certainly it's possible that the people of Isaiah's day, having heard the prophecy, read from Isaiah when he, when he gave them from verse 1 to 6, that they might have responded in this way. That's possible. But they wouldn't have fully completely understood it. For later on in verse 18, we're going to see the mention of your sanctuary has been trodden down. That is the temple. And as of the writing of Isaiah, the temple was still intact. 
It had not been trodden down. It was still in the possession of Israel. So it would have been odd that uh, this response is a direct fulfillment, uh, was directly fulfilled in Isaiah's day. Most likely, this is a, would be fulfilled in, in a further down the road. It would be fulfilled in the future. And so then again, when we come to these fulfillment of prophecy, there's oftentimes a near and far fulfillment. The near fulfillment of this would probably be in the Babylonian exile, when the people that in, in, uh, in captivity would maybe hear from Isaiah's words, and they might respond in this way. But even so, even that near fulfillment would be, impartial, would be a partial fulfillment as well. When we later on next week, we'll, or in a couple weeks from now, we'll look, or next time, we'll look at chapter 64, verse 1, and, and following there, it will become clear that it's speaking of the coming of the Messiah to judge the nations. This future coming of the nation, of Messiah to judge the nations is a view. They're calling out for that. So ultimately, this response that we find here in verse 7 and all the way to 364 is a response that we're going to find of Israel in that very day when the Messiah returns to judge, to, to execute his vengeance upon the nations of the earth. This is going to be the response of Israel when their Messiah comes to save them. This is the prophecy of that. So we see then, second event that's going to take place on the day of vengeance is found in verse 7 to 14. And that in Israel, there will be a remembrance of the Lord's loving kindness. They're going to remember the reason why they experience all the judgment. And even coming to that day of vengeance, as we believe in this church, there's going to be a period of tribulation, a period of seven years where Israel is going to be particularly judged and even they're going to be deceived. But there's going to be a judgment upon the whole earth. And in that time, Israel will come to the place of recognizing and remembering the character of their God. They're going to come to a a return to the Lord who is their God. Verse 7, we see then, we begin. Let's take a look at this. Isaiah says, writes on behalf of Israel, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. It's very interesting. In the Hebrew, in the original language here, the verse begins and ends with the word loving kindnesses. Loving kindnesses. Kessid Hebrew word. It is that faithful covenant love of God that he manifests. God's love is never like our love. When we talk about love today in our world, even the love that people, husband and wife, oftentimes express to one another, it's, it's a fickle love. It's, even in our day, it's love until, well, until we can't get along and then we, we end our marriage. Love is, our love is oftentimes a, 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 a temporary love. It's a temporal love. It's love based upon, oh, because I'm attracted to you, because I like you, because of something about you. That's why I love you. But God's love is not like that. God's love is not fickle. It's never based upon attraction that comes and goes. It's not because of something of Israel that was something shining or new about them. God's love was based, is a love that's based upon a commitment, a covenant he makes, that he chooses to love Israel. He says, because I've chosen and committed to love you, I will always love you, for better or for worse. This is his covenant love. When it comes to Israel's future salvation, it does not depend upon Israel's faithfulness, as we've seen, because they've not been faithful. But it is grounded upon the loving kindness of the Lord. Everything that he's granted them, all his great goodness, all is due to his loving kindness. 
Remember back in chapter 62, verse 6, by the way, where the Messiah appoints the watchmen upon the walls of Jerusalem, watchmen who would, uh, to re- who would serve to remind the Lord of his promise to save Israel. They, they remind God. Well, that's what <clears throat> Isaiah is doing here. Isaiah is reminding the Lord of his promise to save Israel, even as he's making mention. That short verb, I shall make mention, is actually the same verb as to, remi- to remember. He's causing God to remember. He's bringing to recalling this truth. It means to remind. Isaiah fulfills his watchman role in, in leading in Israel in an intercessory prayer. They're calling out to God, but they're not talking about themselves to begin with. They're calling out to God and they're repeating and remembering exactly what God's revealed to them about who he is, about his character, about his loving kindness. They remember that God is love. And he loves them. And he's reminding the Lord, Lord, save us not because we're worthy, but because of your abundance of love. And verse 8 to 14, Isaiah then recounts God's love for Israel throughout Israel's history. This pattern that God has constantly shown, even though Israel's pattern has been sin upon sin upon sin. Sin times repentance, sin. Repentance, sin. But each time, God shows love. God shows love. God loves them. He disciplines them. God loves them, he saves them. God loves them, he disciplines them. God loves them, he saves them. God has always been consistent in his love for them. And he begins, Isaiah begins with the election and identification of the people of Israel in verse 8, we read 8 through 10. Let's look at this. This is just a demonstration of his love. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence Saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. God had chosen them to be his people. We know this. He chose Israel among all the nations of the earth to be his. He chose Abraham out of Ur of Chaldees and told promise that he would make of him a great nation. He, God became their savior. He would, and he, in his covenant relation with them, he was, he, his plan was that they, would, his will for them is that they would then be faithful to him. But they were, though they were not. And yet God remained faithful to them. Each time they were afflicted, the angel of his presence, that is the pre-incarnate Christ himself, would, would save them, would rescue them, would deliver them. In his love, he, we see here, he redeemed them, he lifted them, he carried them. All these different ways of how God cared and watched over his people. We see a specific example of how God, the pre-incarnate Christ, delivered them in Exodus chapter 23, in 20 to 23. I want to go there because this is really interesting. Not only was God with them, but so his son was with them. That's the, his present, the angel of his presence. And we see it here in verse Exodus 23. Behold, God is saying to Israel, in Moses and to Israel, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So this is an angel. He's going to say, I'm going to send an angel to go before you. At first, this could be any angel. It could be just a created angel. But we see in the rest of these verses that it indicates there's something special about this angel. Be on your guard before him, that is this angel, and obey his voice. That is, obey this angel that is going to go before you. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgressions since my name is in him. Can angels forgive? No. 
The fact that he is not going to forgive them tells us that this angel has the power to forgive. This angel is the Lord. What you see, read on, is none other than the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Christ. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. God promised, basically, his angel, the Christ, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, to go with them. And he would give them the victory if they would obey his voice. But as you know, they did not obey his voice. And so the Christ did not deliver them uh, from their enemies and allowed them to, many of them, that they allowed to remain to be a, th- a thorn in their side. But God had, God had given them, the angel of the Lord, his presence. Uh, and said they grieved his Holy Spirit, verse 10. And by the way, that ver- grieving Holy Spirit is the first time we see in the Old Testament. Mentioned again in our familiar Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what Israel did. And that's what we do when we sin. When we rebel against him. But nevertheless in the midst of when we grieve the Holy Spirit. God's love remains the same. And so God disciplined them. Uh, His loving kindness never changes. Sometimes it appears that oh why is God disciplining? Has he changed? Has he stopped loving me? No he loves you just the same. It's because of your sin. That's why he's disciplining you now. He responds to us differently depending upon where we're at, but always responding to us in love. The people remember him now. They remember, so they remember as, as they're being disciplined by the Lord, as he, as he opposes them, uh, we see and, and disciplines them, we see this response of the people in verse 11 of 63. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness they did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. A series of rhetorical questions we find here in this, this remembrance uh, of Israel, of the Lord. And they remember that basically, who, who is this one who has ever basically watched over us throughout our history, throughout the days of old? And again, we, we see even now the third member of the Trinity manifests here, right? He who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them. And this is not like our New Testament indwelling in the Holy Spirit individually, but this was a, a, a bodily, a, 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 a kind of a nationally, his, God's Spirit would be in the midst of them, be among them. The very spirit of the Lord that they grieved by the rebellion was the same spirit that gave them rest when, in the times when they would go through the wilderness, in the times when they would go through valleys, in the times of darkness, their spirit would be there. And so we see this, all these, these verses basically essentially are Israel's remembrance of God. They remember God's love for them. They recall, they, and they ask themselves rhetorically, where is this God now? Where is this God now? When the Lord comes again as a, a conquering warrior, it will be a terrifying moment throughout the world. It will be a terrifying event to take place in this world. Uh, as you read your news, in the last month or so, we've seen lots of stories of major natural disasters, major forest fires, major loss of lives. We've seen read stories of violent acts of men, um, 
mass shootings and murders, terrorist of, of activity. And all these things are terrible. They grip our attention. We read them and we say, we shake our heads. But no natural disaster, no violent act of man will compare to the terrifying day of vengeance of our God. And then when that day happens, anyone who would be there, anyone who would be there to see it would naturally ask themselves the question, what, will do, what can I do? What will save me from the terror of his wrath, from the terror of God's anger? For Israel, who deserved as much as any nation, God's wrath, they will respond. They will remember that what saves them is God's loving kindness. That's why they go there first. They know that it's God's love for them that will save them. His loving kindness towards them throughout the days of old will be the same loving kindness extended to them in the day of vengeance. That's why they remember who he is. And for you and me today, as we think about the terrifying day of vengeance of our God, what will save you and me from that day? What will save us from that wrath? That very same God. The very same loving kindness of God. <clears throat> that loving kindness is the same reason that we will be spared on the day of judgment. We who have believed upon him, we who have believed upon his son, Jesus Christ, Though we deserve God's wrath, will be spared because of God's faithfulness to his loyal love, to his character, because of his promise that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I hope we can praise God for that. That is what will save us. I hope that day you will not say, oh, Lord, I've done this, I've done that in your name. I went to church every Sunday. I, I, I served, I preached your word. Oh, I, I, man, I, I did my devotions. I prayed regularly. No, we will cast ourselves upon the loving kindness of our Lord and say, no, it's because of your love, O oh Lord, your love that you sent your son and is your gift of love whom I believed upon and trusted in for my salvation, though I am worthy of every ounce of your wrath and judgment. That will be our cry, and, and it will be, and he, in his mercy, he will save us. He will deliver us from that day. So, and we see then response, the first response is the remembrance of the Lord's character. But Israel will also respond in a second way, and that we, we can, the expected response is a request for the Lord's return, that the Lord will return to them. And that's what we see in verse 15 to 19. Their prayer is that the Lord will return to reign over them in Jerusalem. Is the prayer of contrition directed to the Father, verse 15, we read, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. Israel here is going to call upon God to look upon them, to see them in their sad condition. And though he is their God, long absent, long has been absent, God's zeal, God's mighty deeds among them. They recognize that God's heart and God's compassion have been held back from them. They have not seen it. They've not experienced it for a long time. But nevertheless, they will have faith in him again. Verse 16. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. 
You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. Here is a statement of faith of Israel in the God who is their Father. In Isaiah's days and even in Jesus' days, Israelites prided themselves on being descendants of whom? Of Abraham, of Israel. They, their physical descent was what was important to them. They thought salvation was almost was like automatic because they were Jews. But here, one day, Israel is going to recognize that it's not because of their genetic descent. It's not because of their character, who they are, who they're born to that saves them. It's because of God saves them. It's because of who is their father. Again, it is who that matters. And it is God who is their father. God is their, the, and he says it twice, in fact, Oh Lord, you are our father. And that father is the one who is their redeemer. They, and he does not forget. They remember where the redemption comes from, not from Abraham, not from Israel, but from the, our heavenly father. And so they make the request in verse 17, Why, O oh Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our hearts from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants and the tribes of your heritage. Now, it seems, just in our English reading, that Israel is blaming the Lord for their sin, but they are not. They are, what they're doing here is they're recognizing God's sovereignty over their lives. And they recognize that apart from God's sovereign intervention, they themselves chose to stray from his ways. And when it speaks of God hardening heart, it's basically God's judgment. It's God's judgment when people choose to sin. Eventually, God, he's been withholding us. And God, even now, God has, shows grace and holds us back from the sin that we could commit. But when you keep sinning and keep sinning, eventually God's just going to let go. He's going to let you go, and, and you're going to choose to do exactly what you always want to do, and he's going to let you become hardened in that. And Israel is recognizing that they've been choosing so long to go their own way that God has allowed them to go their way and has hardened their hearts, and there is no salvation. There's no way to help, and so they cry out to God. They know that they can't save themselves, and they, so they cry out to the Lord, return for the sake of your servants. They remind Lord, return to us. Come back to us. Show us once again your, your mercy, your compassion, your love. They remind him that they are his servants. They belong to him. All this is, these verses, they describe his, their, that they belong to him. They are his heritage. They're his possession. Return to those who belong to him. In the final verses, they describe their condition as a final motivation for God's return. Verse 18 19. Your holy people possess your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. They essentially here are appealing to God's name, God's reputation. They remind God of, they've already reminded that they are his people and their servants, his heritage. But now they're saying, they're reminding him about his sanctuary, his temple. The, the one place on earth that was where his glory had dwelt in the Holy of Holies. For a little while his people had possessed it. But now it is of the moment of this, this saying, this, that they had been trodden down by adversaries. We see in... Uh, uh, in, in the Gospels and in Revelation, that this is a future event where the Gentiles will be trodden down, trodden the whole city of Jerusalem, including the temple, until the days of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So they say, your sanctuary is basically broken down, and, and it's, it's, being, it's in the hands of those who are, or are not your people. 
So they're calling upon him to save them for the sake of the sanctuary as well. What's more, they say, they remind him that of who they are. His people are now like, they say, those who are not his people. They're like those who've never had a relationship. They're just like every other nation, far away from God, experiencing the wrath of God, under the judgment of God. And so they're conning God to return to his people, to his, for his name, to restore his sanctuary, to rescue his own possession among all the nations. And you know, that's exactly what Messiah will do. That's what exactly Messiah, he will come back for his name, for his glory. He will take back that which belongs to him. He will restore back that which is to, for him. And, while in any, and all who oppose him will face the fierce wrath of the winepress of our God. You see, the day of vengeance is coming. It will be a terrible day. We've looked at it today. We've seen it in Revelation 19. I want to read the rest of Revelation 19 so that we might just get the, the complete terror of that day. Revelation 19, verse 17 through 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Sobering words. But this is a reminder to us of that terrifying day of vengeance of our God. It will come as sure as we believe that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins. We can believe that Jesus Christ will come and he will bring about the death of all who oppose him. He will merely speak it. The sword from his mouth will kill them all. What assurance do we have, do you have, that you will not face judgment upon that day? I trust that your assurance of deliverance is based upon the character of God's loving kindness and your faith in his provision of his servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for his sins and rose from the grave so that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, will be delivered and will know salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, for your servant, the Messiah, who not only came the first time to deliver us from sin, to die the death that we deserved, but Father, we thank you and praise you for the Messiah who will come again. In that terrible day of wrath, the day of vengeance, where your justice be made manifest upon the earth. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that not only Israel will come to saving faith through remembering who you are, your, your love towards them, 
but they will cry out to you and come to repentance. And so, Lord, we who live now, who have come to know this truth, may you cause us, if we have not in this room, <coughs> to cry out to you, to know your great love towards us, and to cry out in faith and to call out to you for, for forgiveness of sins and for salvation and for deliverance from your judgment through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for providing the way. And Lord, may you cause us to bring this message, even though it's a message that the world does not want to hear, a message that will not be popular, a message that will sound more like a myth to many people's ears. But because you have said it, because it is in your word, it is truth. And it is truth that many people need to hear, that they might be delivered from their sin. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Continue to cause this hope to go forth through this church to our world. For your glory, for your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.